The episode you're about to hear is supported by the Belfast Buildings Trust and made possible by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Really hope that you enjoy. The Ulster Folk and Transport Museum in Coltraw is a treasure trove of vehicles that tell the story of this place. Buses, trams, trains and even a Back to the Future-esque old DeLorean car. But when we spoke to Hannah Crowdy from National Museums, we realised that something very significant is missing. Something that until just a few weeks ago, I had no idea even existed. I haven't got much on Lillian Bland, but from a museum perspective, what is a source of frustration to us, I suppose, is that we, we haven't got her plane. Naturally, this led to one simple question. What plane? And who the heck is Lillian Bland? Lillian was the first woman in the world to design, build and fly her own airplane. Very, very few people have heard the story. The local clergyman told his parishioners to stone her. And to think that there was someone who was doing this right on my doorstep. This woman who's already been a photographer, she's been a sports journalist, She's been all of these things. And so she decides to fly. It's quite hard to get your head around. So, buckle up, sit back and relax as we journey through the pages of local history to find out more about this incredible woman, but more importantly, why she has become a missing piece in our history. My name's Matthew Thompson, and these are the streets where they lived. Belfast is all about stories. Any place is all about stories. Because without those people, we wouldn't be here today. You walk in the footsteps of your predecessors. But not the work ethic, I mean, that would come from his early days in Belfast, I would think. So he, he deserves to be remembered with a great job. Well, absolutely, they're for legends. Welcome to the streets where they lived. A six-part podcast series where we'll be diving deep into the incredible heritage of Belfast through the stories of historic men and women and the buildings they once called home. Episode 3 is all about Lillian Bland, the first woman in the world to design, build and fly her own airplane. Really hope that you enjoy. have always always had this really deep connection to the sky and the stars we've been curious about flying you know the earliest cultural record of this is in greek mythology with icarus and it's continued even today we're still aggressively pursuing human flight we've always had this desire to to discover something bigger than earth something bigger than ourselves to have this feeling that you know we can do something that we weren't made to do and I think that curiosity it's definitely still within us and I think that even though we've built aircraft and we know how they work and we know how they fly it's something that still captures the imagination. My 
my name is Sinead O'Sullivan. I am an aerospace engineer. I'm from Northern Ireland. I'm from Armagh. And uh, probably the biggest thing that I've done in terms of aerospace is working for NASA and being a designer on the Mars and an asteroid collection mission. I would love to know, like, um, you can be honest if the answer is yes or no. Before we were doing this documentary, did you know who Lillian Bland was? Uh, no, I actually didn't. <laughs> when you contacted me, I mean, it's really captivated my imagination now. I think it's really, really crazy that, you know, when I was younger, I used to look at Amelia Earhart and think, wow, what an incredible explorer, scientist, engineer. And to think that there was someone who was doing this before Amelia, right on my doorstep. It makes me excited, but it also makes me a little bit sad that there are lost generations of people who haven't been inspired by that story. Now, if you've been following along with the other episodes in this series, you'll know that Lillian's story being forgotten is not unusual for many of the incredible people from the pages of our local history. To try to figure out why that is, we caught up with Fanula J. O'Boyle the founder of the Belfast Buildings Trust, and someone whose passion for this place is second to none. Uh, I'd love to kind of like hear some of your thoughts around maybe like a narrative that exists out there where it's like all Northern Ireland is famous for is the Troubles. Because one of the things I've been so shocked by in doing these documentaries is all of these incredible men and women from history that, frankly, I just didn't know existed. Yeah, and but I think a lot of this is about cultural confidence. We're told that we're famous for ships and linen, and there's nothing wrong with that. We should be proud of that, and we should celebrate that. But I think also we've got to be confident enough of ourselves as a people to actually say there are people out there that chose to do things differently, and to make a difference. And Lillian Bland is one of them, those people. Danny Blanchflower is one of those people. Otto Jaffe is another of those people. So, you know, it's, it's about actually giving ourselves permission to remember, choosing to remember, and actually also saying, actually, remembering makes it special and it makes what they did special and um, come on we're as good as that we can do this absolutely more power to us uh it's just amazing like i, I don't know maybe i'm now like biased and maybe swung the too far the other way but i'm like why are we doing all of these things consider we are so small we're doing them because of who we are and where we come from um you know we're an entrepreneurial people but we're an artistic people, um, we're a creative people, and all of these things matter to us. So our, our land matters to us, our environment matters, our architectural heritage matters, our culture matters, all of those things. So, in fact, it's, it's, it's about marrying the fact that we do these things and recognising that we do these things very, very well. Lillian was the first woman in the world to design, build and fly her own aeroplane, which was a remarkable achievement. That's incredible. You know, all the more so for being in, you know, what really was in 1910, a fairly remote backwater here. Here's Guy Warner, a local author, historian and expert on all things Lillian Bland, 
to tell us more about the main woman herself. If you think of card money in those days, it was Presbyterian Ulster. Yeah. <laughs> Presbyterian rural Ulster. Absolutely. And Lillian got up to things that a young lady really shouldn't have done, well, according to her aunt anyway, mm. that she wore breeches for riding instead of going side saddle like a lady. Yeah. She went hunting very regularly and was an extremely accomplished huntswoman. She tinkered with motor car engines. And then also, if there are any poachers lying going around at night time outside Tobercorn House, she wasn't averse to taking a pot shot out. <laughs> Tobercorn House as such no longer exists, but mm. the stable block is still there that Lillian worked in. But the old house is replaced by a modernish bungalow. And I went to visit the lady called Nora Schwab, who lived there. And she was able to give me a painting of what Tobercorn House looked like when Lillian lived there. I mean, Nora was about 90 years old or more then and had a fascinating story herself in that she was a refugee from East Prussia when the rise of the Nazis happened. And she said that a very old lady had visited her way back just at the end of the 50s. And she reckons now that that was Lillian Bland. That's incredible. And she also said from the stable block she cleared it out a good number of years ago, including this very old dirty piece of carpet, which we think was actually the seat of Lillian's aeroplane. Even though Guy told us that there wasn't much left to see, we couldn't resist going to have a look at Lillian's old stomping grounds in Glengormley with Marcus Patton from the Belfast Buildings Trust to see what we could find. It's deserted. This is lovely, Oh, this looks like a red brick building back here. After venturing up a pretty hidden private lane, we discovered a deserted bungalow, an ivy-covered so blue plaque, and a lot of mud. It's very muddy, folks. Okay. Ah, yes. So I think this might be all it remains and doesn't look like stables. We go back to the old maps here. That was the 1830 map, and it was just sort of countryside, but with a house on the site there. So that's probably the lane we came down. And this might be the, the bit here. Yeah, and I mean, like, as developed as this kind of area is now, this was still a bit of a treasure hunt to find here. I know for us, yes. anyway, today. Yes. And, you know, these grounds here, they're absolutely gorgeous, you know, for being yeah. in the middle of a quite a busy development, mm-hmm. you know. So the only, the only trace we have with this, which I assume is stables, and the gate pillar outside with the name of the house. But apart from that, everything is gone. Yeah. And it's it's so frustrating when you come to try and track the history of someone or what's it, or something that happened in a place and you find absolutely no visible sign of it. Mm. Because if you have the house, it's like an historic document. Yeah. And you know, if you find a letter from someone in 1870 or something like that, you're taken right back to that person and they're writing the times they're in. And the same with the building. It's like a, it's a physical document which you can walk inside, which you can read in the same way as a document. Yeah. But uh, and in this case... We have traces, but really only traces. Absolutely. And I mean, it's hard to know for sure, but I know, you know, based on her research so far, that she 
Stephanie started building the Mayfly in the stable. So are we standing on the spot? I don't know. You know, where would where would the horses have been here? But it is certainly interesting, like you said, to kind of have that trace mm. to the past. Well, this looks like a coach house. In fact, I'm seeing some timber on the back wall. The sort of thing you might have found for hanging harnesses and on. There's no sign of any fixtures on that. But it looks like there have been um, some kind of hooks there. Any idea what, what this kind of box is here? Yes, that's a manger. A manger for feeding the free hay, for feeding the horses. Ah. So how do you approach, uh, say, a story like this or a, you know, a piece of research like this where a lot of the actual physical artefacts of the person don't exist? Because, for example, it's not just the house we're dealing with with Lillian. Her plane has vanished mm -hmm. off the face of the earth. There's all these kind of rumours and mysteries of people who claim to have merely the engine. That's <laughs> it. And there's this whole community like, no, I have Lillian Bland's engine. No, I have Lillian Bland's engine. But, you know, you, you're dealing with such loose, you're really grasping at straws. So how do you as a historian, you know, go about approaching a subject like this where so much has been lost? Documents are the, the first thing you go on then. It'd be very much nicer if you can find something physical. If it's gone, then you're down to talking to people, um, people whose parents maybe remember something. You're talking that far back that you're going to find many people that will actually have seen something like this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're standing here looking at a, an empty site, or rather, a new site with a new building on it. Uh, you know, Tobacco House itself, Lillian's house, long gone. But I see you've brought a, a photo of what it did look like. Um, do you want to maybe describe it to us and point out any interesting features with your keen architectural eye? Well, it's a very poor photograph, I have to say. It was good to have at least eight <laughs> photographs. Um, it's showing a two-storey, uh, looks like red brick house, possibly with some coloured bricks in the arches over the first floor windows. It looks like alternating dark and light bricks over those in the soldier arch, as we call it, the vertical bricks over an, an opening. So there are dormer windows and a gable on the second floor. There are veranda windows, really um, bow windows on the ground floor. The sort of features we could pick out of it, which we can recognise in the stables, the first floor windows have a, a slightly elliptical head to them and not a flat head, and we're seeing that same very slight shallow arch on the stable building, mm. on the upper windows of it. Glengormley then was very much a village. I was born in 1956, so the empty motorway hadn't even been built. We were able to walk across where the M2 is, and it sort of looked like you'd landed on the moon because there were all these big concrete funnels that were obviously going to be placed sort of underneath and we used to play in those. That's Carol Murr, a local director who's currently working on a play about the life of Lillian and who in a lovely twist of events actually grew up just a few streets away from Tobercorn House. So Glengormley, Kermoney, Bellevue Zoo, Cave Hill, at the age of 10 and 11 I would have gone to all those places on my own when children felt much safer. Of course, I was not aware of Tobercorn House, although it's only about four streets from where I grew up. But I suppose because it was up a laneway and it was private, I wouldn't have thought of going into it. So to suddenly discover this incredible woman called Lillian Bland, it's quite hard to get your head around. I'd cut out an article 
I don't know if it was in the Belfast Telegraph. And also because we've been in a lockdown situation as an actor and a director and a facilitator, there has been no work. And what we've all been doing in lockdown is furiously writing funding applications to get some money to develop future projects. And it was actually because of the Resilient Fund that I put forward the idea of writing a play about Lillian. And I've just become obsessed with her and the need for for all of us to get that story out because I think she is an amazing role model for all of us. I think her story gives us hope. It gives us hope that anything is possible if we work at it. After talking to Carol, we really wanted to figure out if anyone else had been inspired by Lillian's story. And more specifically, if anyone is carrying forward her legacy in the aerospace industry today. A few random email chains led me to Queen's University's Aerospace Department, where I discovered yet another Lillian Bland fan who's also working away and doing incredible things. Hi, my name is Danny Soban, and I am a senior lecturer at Queen's University Belfast, and I teach aerospace engineering. And my areas of research tend to be, um, I'm in aircraft design and optimization of complex systems and data analysis. And I absolutely love teaching this next generation of engineers all about aerospace and airplanes. So I'm a woman in aerospace, which is traditionally a male-dominated career. And I've been doing this my entire life. I love airplanes. I love the idea of flight. And I moved here to Northern Ireland about 10 years ago. And um, at that time, if you think about the people that we know in the field in aerospace, we hear about the men. We hear about the Wright brothers. We hear about all of these fabulous people who happen to be men who have made all of these headway in our field. And the only female that you really hear about is Amelia Earhart. And everybody knows Amelia Earhart. And Amelia Earhart was an amazing pilot and really uh, had a fascinating life. But you don't hear about female aircraft designers or you don't hear about female engineers. You know, there's no role models. So I moved over here to Northern Ireland and um, immediately started to hear about Harry Ferguson, who's a local Mm. hero who designed and built his own airplane. And that was about it. And then kind of just throughout going through my career and talking to people, this name kept popping up, Lillian Bland, Lillian Bland. You know, I had a, a colleague who supervised a student who was making a model of her airplane. Wow. Um, yeah, it was really, you know, just a little scale model doing some drawings and things. And then um, the same colleague put together a team of female postgraduates to build a scale model of her airplane. And that's who really started hearing Lillian Bland. Who is this? And I started to get more familiar with her airplane first, which is the the Mayfly. And I, I, I do aircraft design myself. That's my field. So I was very interested in the aircraft itself. But what really got me to be a Lillian Bland fan was a few years ago, I was invited to participate in Dumbworld's production of Anything But Bland, which was a multimedia production about Lillian Bland's life. And the concept was was brilliant. What they did is they took 200 women and girls from um, all around Ireland and brought them together to perform as a choir 
to sing about Lillia Bland's life. And it was just such an amazing experience, just breathtaking being involved. My daughter was involved with me. She was um, eight years old at the time. And the songs and the lyrics just really, really drove home everything about Lillian Bland, all of these accomplishments. So it was, it was focused on her flying, but it was about her life and what it was like to be a woman at the time and how she broke all these boundaries. I was researching historically what had happened in the last 100 years in Ireland, and I was sort of going through year by year. And I came across this, this line of history, which was uh, Miss Lillian Bland becomes the first woman to design, build, and fly an aeroplane in current money in Do you have a favorite song out of the collection of it? Oh, I think so. There's a song that we have at, um, and it's the way it plays out. It's it's called Anything But Land, and it ends up, if you hear it, it's um, the key song in the whole piece, but it ends up a bit like a, a bit like a big rap riff, you know? <laughs> anything but land, anything, anything, anything. And so we have everybody, the whole choir, riffing it up. So I think it's this really unique mixture of both curiosity and people who kind of build and make and do things that, that was kind of spurred on by this industrialization. And so, you know, you have Harland and Wolf, you have 
uh, shorts, which was then Bombardier, which I think is now going to be Spirit. Just this island of people who are making, building, doing. And I guess at some stage it kind of coalesced and merged into an industry that was necessary and needed. Why do you think we got into planes? I don't think it was ever a national or industrial policy as such. I think over time, like I said, it kind of merged into being that Northern Ireland certainly demonstrated technological capabilities for aviation and and the aerospace market. But probably what happened is that you had some unique people who who were really interested in this type of thing. Now, whether that was building things that fly, interested in creating some sort of technological capabilities. I mean, we see even at Harland and Wolf, yes, the technologies are are both maritime, which is probably makes more sense for an island. <laughs> but those people, I think if you look at the people who were building the technologies, they probably were just looking for an outlet mm. to kind of, you know, spend their intellectual curiosity. Now, why build boats when you can build planes so i think it's you know it probably started in northern ireland with some people who were really uh curious and who enjoyed building things and i guess at some stage it it took off (laughs) it gathered some some momentum (laughs) oh man i mean going back to our curiosity and we're inquisitive we always imagine that these far-off places are so amazing and more interesting and a lot of the time all of those kind of inspirational stories are on your doorstep and you you overlook them in search of something bigger and better. But the story of Lillian Bland is really mind-blowing. I hope that other people get to know about her in a way that they can be inspired by, by her ability to tinker and engineer and conjure up some science. So she built a model glider, then she built a full-size glider, which she decided to name the Mayfly on the grounds that it may fly or it may not. <laughs> um, so, okay, spring of 1910, and up she went to Carnmoney Hill with her glider. Uh, she was assisted by Joe Blaine, who was the gardener's boy, despite wow. the fact he was a man of 32 at the time. <laughs> but Joe, Joe was quite a talented person himself, as well as being the gardener. He was also a crack shot himself and had won medals for it. So off he went with Lillian and carted the machine up to the slopes of Carnmoney Hill. And they proved fairly swiftly that she'd made a good design. The lifting qualities of it were very good because one day in particular, uh, she'd encouraged four members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, who presumably were at the barracks in Glengormley, to come up to the top of the hill with her. And each of them took a corner of the aircraft and held on. And at once, once apparently, it took off so quickly that one of the constables uh, nearly went up for a ride as a pilot <laughs> without really wanting to. But luckily, they managed to, to hold him. So again, going back to what Lillian says, I had her out again today, wind of 18 miles an hour. You want the wind to be just right, not too strong, not too soft, so as you can turn the glider into the wind, so a bit like a kite, it'll take to the air. My only difficulty is at present to prevent her flying when I don't want her to. (laughs) Today, I had some men to assist me, 
Two of them knew nothing about the subject at all, and she ran the rope through their hands and soared up to 20 feet before anyone was prepared. Fortunately, uh, the other man and myself had hold of a long rope. We saved the situation. In fact, we got the machine soaring beautifully. So, as I say, it's almost the way you'd fly a kite until a downwind caught the elevators which had fastened. She dived down and broke both her skids, but did no other damage. It is quite a new sensation to be charged by an aeroplane. <laughs> oh, so she had she a sense of humour too. She was good crack. Oh, yeah, she, I think she would have had a great sense of humour. So there she was. She was experimenting, but these were sort of empirical experiments to see what happened. Because really in those days, they didn't know what would happen. You're, sure. the, you people on their own, all over the show, corresponding through flight magazines, exchanging ideas, and then seeing what worked and what didn't work. Now, another fascinating thing about her experimenting was that in order to try and design the wing so that the air would flow over it smoothly, what she did was that she went into the bathroom at Tobacorn House, ran the hot water, filled the room with steam, and then passed the sort of model aerofoil shapes, wing shapes, through the steam to see how the air flowed over them. My goodness. Now, that's pretty good. That is genius. So once she had decided on the glider design and had built it and had flown it quite well on Carnmoney Hill, she then thought, well, let's go to the next stage and put an engine in her. So in July 1910 caught the ferry to England and returned with a 20-horsepower engine uh, built by the A.V. Rowe Company, which became very famous for making Avro aircraft. So she didn't go and buy any old engine. I mean, an Avro engine was top of the range in those days. And she brought it back on the boat train with her. Now, apparently, she was sitting on the train and two other passengers asked to the purpose of her baggage. And she said, to make an aeroplane. <laughs> and apparently the passenger said, well, what is an aeroplane? Which gives you <laughs> an interesting guide into the state of knowledge in those days. Wow. 95% or more of the population had never seen an aeroplane, had never heard of one. Now, this was the cutting edge that Lillian was at. It was the same cutting edge as flying to the moon in 1969, in a way. I love the story. Um, famously, you're talking about her aunt criticizing her for, you know, riding astride instead of side saddle. That the um, the local clergyman told his parishioners to stone her as what? she was riding through the village. Are you yeah. serious? <laughs> it's it's one of the it's one of the anecdotes about her. So I can and and I just love that visual image of her just riding all out, you know, through the countryside and having people picking up stones and throwing them at her because wow. she's not riding like a like a, a traditional woman should ride. Yeah, no one no Lillian should, like, have a crack back at them, you know, gone on shoulder. <laughs> she would, she would. <laughs> That's awesome. I would like to give a shout-out to her father, who he was supportive as much as he could be at the time and way more than would be typical in a family at that time. So, yes, her aunt was very critical of her, but her father pretty much gave her free reign and did support her in all of these different passionate activities that she had, you know, the journalism and the airplanes and all of this stuff. And 
allowed her the freedom to do that, which I think is really important because not all the women at the time had that kind of support and that privilege to be able to pursue those passions as fantastically as Lillian Bland did. One of my favorite Lillian Bland related experiences is I went to her um, her park. You know, she has a local park named after her. There's a lovely statue of the Mayfly in that park. And you can climb all over that statue. And as we were leaving, these two little girls were racing across the field and I heard them arguing with each other. They're like, I want to be the pilot. No, I'm going to be the pilot. <laughs> and I love it, it, that it was so normal for these two little girls to argue about who gets to be the pilot. Because when I was growing up, if there was a statue of an airplane in there, you know, the girls would be sitting in the back and the boys would be up there pretending to be the pilots. So good. Um, so I'm, a, I'm aware that like, we could literally spend a full like two hour roundtable discussion on this, but I'd love to kind of hear some of your thoughts and I've kind of come at this from two angles. What can we do to encourage more women to get into STEM slash why aren't more women getting into STEM? And the second bit, the kind of more personal aspect of this. So you mentioned her father. Uh, we just had our first child there, oh, just, just three, three months old, like awesome. just a few days ago. And she's a little girl. So what could I do on the individual level as a father to certainly not force, you know, my, my daughter down a specific road, but at least stoke the flames that if she's interested, she would feel comfortable or encouraged enough to, to pursue that as a viable option? I think that the question of why there aren't more women in STEM has been researched and researched, and we don't have all of the answers, but we have identified some of the barriers that keep women from going into STEM. Um, one of the biggest one is simply lack of role models. Women don't see themselves out there because they don't see other women they can look up to that are in the same roles. And so it doesn't become internalized that these are roles that they can. Another big one is to work with the, the secondary schools and the high schools, especially the teachers and the guidance counselors to let them know of the availability of these careers. Because it's often just that people don't know to offer these options to young women. You know, if you have a very bright young woman, they tend to be pushed into law or they tend to be offered um, going into medicine. But we don't see quite as much emphasis on saying, oh, you're a smart young woman, you're interested in science and maths and physics, do you want to consider engineering? In terms of having a young child, it's pretty much the same thing, just normalizing that it's okay for young girls to play with traditional what we would call male toys engineering toys you know instead of just always the pink aisle you know the barbie dolls you know that kind <laughs> of thing. you know so it's it's just exposing your children to everything that's out there so that they can find their passion and then encouraging them to follow it and letting them know that it's okay one of the the joys of being an educator is to watch and see what our students are doing. And I have had the privilege to work with some amazing female engineering students who are really going off and doing things, breaking barriers. I've got a young woman who's working for Boeing, another brilliant young woman working for Lockheed, and she's making waves already in her career. And it's just a joy to see another article pop up, you know, about her. <laughs> um, Postgraduate students who have gone off and gotten their PhDs 
in engineering and they're off doing things and they're teaching and they're doing fabulous research. I mean, it's just amazing. It's inspiring. I know we've had at least one female student. She wasn't mine. I think she was graduated right before I got there, who's airline pilot. So definitely. And and that's what it's going to take. You know, going back to your earlier question about getting women in STEM, these are the role models for tomorrow. They're out there doing it right now. And some little girl out there is going to look up and see them in the paper or see them, you know, when they take a tour of an office facility and they're going to say, there, I can do that. That's what I want to do. It's always easier if people can see the physical and relate to that. So, I mean, this is the point that I'm making about once it's gone, it can't come back. But I come back to the disrespect. I come back to the people who built that building, who lived in that building, whose stories are inextricably linked with that building. That's a loss as well. So you had the physical loss, you had the historic loss, but you also have the loss to us as a people. And I think that a lot of um, those who perhaps subscribe to knocking down historic buildings or clearing sites think they're being radical. I absolutely think the radical option is to marry the historic with the 21st century. It's not impossible. Believe it or believe it not, the historic buildings lobby, as some people might describe it, are the real radicals. So here you have this innovative, courageous, out there woman. I mean, really, you know, Amelia Earhart is 12 when she has her first flight. This woman who's already been a photographer, she's been a sports journalist, she's been all of these things. And so she decides to fly. She had her detractors. She had the people who told her she couldn't do it. And hey, off she goes and does it. And I think that it's this, and I suppose it's part of the Belfast story as well. When the chips are down, and particularly for women, strong women get going. Don't tell us we can't do it. Because do you know what? That's when we'll go and do it. Lillian's house, plane and photographs may be gone, but that doesn't mean that her story is over. Each of us have a part to play in not only remembering her story, but also in following in her footsteps by going beyond what the people around us think is possible. The reality is that no matter what journey you or I set off on next, there will always be people who say it cannot be done. There will always be people who say, we cannot do it. And there will always be people that will try to hold us back. But if the story of Miss Lillian Bland from Car Money tells us anything, it's that if she can do it, then there's no reason why you or I can't do it too. My name. Bye.
The Streets Where They Lived is a Best of Belfast production supported by the Belfast Buildings Trust and made possible by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Today's episode was written by me, Matthew Thompson, and produced and edited by Owen McFadden. The beautiful song you heard played at the end of the episode is called Miss Bland of Car Money and was composed and performed by Fanula Fagan. 
to check out the stories of over 150 incredible people from Northern Ireland, including more heritage stories just like this one, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Thanks so much for listening and look forward to catching you again next time. I can't actually believe how big it is. I'm so surprised. I had no idea they actually had commemorated her in this way because that is awesome. It is absolutely massive. It's got everything. It's got her wee seat. It's got the wee pedals that she used. It's like the size of a, like one of those yellow school buses. And it is actually, for being a sculpture and like a kind of a replica of it, it is very, very detailed. And you can come and see it. I mean, it's as good as you're going to get. Like, it's actually better than all the photos of Lillian's actual plane. You can come, you can climb up on the, the plane, you can come and have a look right here in what was formerly Glenglomley Park, but is now the Lillian Blanc Park.